All right, welcome again to our study on Nehemiah. We're week seven of uh, this study. We're going to be mostly in chapter six tonight of Nehemiah. We're going to see some old friends. We're going to uh, see some of our uh, neighboring uh, leaders uh, reappear again after a week's absence. And we're going to be also seeing um, the many different ways that they try to uh, sabotage, uh, uh, stop, the work being done that uh, Nehemiah has been called to by God. So let's turn to that right now. Uh, Chapter 6 in Nehemiah, starting with verse 1. Nehemiah 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind." For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So we are our three favorite uh, characters as opposition uh, appearing again in this chapter. Let's remind ourselves of who these people are. Uh, Sambalat, we know the best. He was the governor of of Samaria. He's the governor, so he's under the king of of Persia, and he's... a larger area than uh, Nehemiah is, but they are somewhat peers. Now, he had been the governor over Judea, the part that uh, Nehemiah is governor now, prior to Nehemiah's uh, arrival. So what the king did is took uh, Judah, kind of carved it out and put a uh, governor over it, taking it away from Sambalat. The other two individuals are, are leaders of some kind, uh, we're not 100% sure whether they're a governor status or officials in the surrounding areas. Um, if this is uh, Judah, Samaria is right above it. 
what was the northern kingdom. And then the other two are across the Jordan, called Transjordan, both to the east and to the southeast um, in the area. So basically, they're, they're watching this area that had been desolated for so many years after being destroyed by the Assyrians and watching it rise up again. And how does it rise up? It starts with a place of worship, and then the city walls are starting to be rebuilt, and then the city itself will be rebuilt. And that's common for the area. When something's been overrun or taken over, you start off on the religious side, the temple, then you fortify the city, and then you actually rebuild the city itself. And that's what they're watching in their midst. And they kind of had free reign over this area. Judah had been nothing. Its people had been nothing. Uh, the Jews had started to trickle back but hadn't come back with any force. And they had been able to stop the efforts to rebuild the temple, if we remember what we read uh, in, in Ezra. And, and now all that is starting to gain momentum again. So they're continuing to oppose this effort. And so why? Why are they so relentless, seemingly chapter after chapter, uh, to stop this. What's their motivation? Well, one, we've just talked about uh, geopolitical power, so especially for Sanballat. He lost part of his territory. Remember, when you lose part of your territory, you lose part of your ability to tax. You lose your, your status or prestige in the pecking order of governors of Persia. Uh, he loses all that. Plus, this is a threat. Governors aren't allowed to attack each other. Persia doesn't want to, but it's, it'd be like we don't want Illinois invading Iowa. Uh, they didn't allow that, but there'd always be these little skirmishes on the border, a little conflict now and then, uh, a chance to gain a little more ground or a little more prestige. You can't do an all-out attack, but you can kind of maybe just influence a city here and there. And that's, that major part of San area is gone now. Another one, and we have to remember this all the way back from Ezra 4, this was their chance to be legitimatized, to have their religion legitimatized, especially for the Samaritans, so Sanballat. Remember, they're a, a people that didn't really have, a, well, an ethnicity, a, a heritage. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom had been taken into exile and had been repopulated with a bunch of people from other parts of Assyria. And, and when it didn't go right, Assyria found a uh, Jewish, or not a Jewish, an Israelite priest, sent him in there to teach them their religion. And so remember, in, in Ezra 4, they come when they start to build the temple, and they say, let us participate. We worship the same God as you do. The problem is, they aren't the people of God. They aren't the chosen ones. They didn't observe the same Bible. They, they looked at only the Pentateuch. They had kind of meshed together their religions from where they had come in with their worship of Yahweh. Not that the Israelites had been pure in their religion at all. They got run over by the Assyrians much because they refused to worship God in the manner that God had prescribed. But they still weren't the people of God. And so in this effort to rebuild, they were rejected. And so in rejecting they were clearly told, your religion is not the religion of God. The God you worship rejects your worship. And that didn't go well. And what's fascinating in this period of time in, in Ezra and Nehemiah that, that, that we're reading about, we can fast forward 500 years to the New Testament, to the opening of the New Testament, read in there, and we see the same conflicts. 
The same problems are going on in the time of Jesus that the Samaritans and the Jews just can't get along to the extent that they're bitter enemies and accuse each other of false worship. In fact, today, if you go into Samaria, you can find the worship that was the worship of the day of Ezra and Nehemiah still going on in small pockets. And when you look at Christianity in Samaria, part of Christianity in Samaria can be found or can find its basis in that type of God worship that was going on at the time. So their motivation is strong. It's both political, it's, it's monetary, it's, it's power, and it's religion. And in all these things, they are desperate to not have this city, this symbol of God, the symbol of proper Yahweh worship rising up right in their midst and becoming a threat to that which they have held for, at this time, decades. So they've tried, as we saw, they tried to be a part of it. They tried to appeal to the king to not have it happen. That worked for a while under a couple of different kings, but Artaxerxes uh, is not holding to that. He's allowing it to continue as his father had started the work, or his grandfather had started the work. So they tried that. That didn't work. Then they, they tried to uh, intimidate. They tried to even physically uh, attack the workers. And all that has been rejected and kind of pushed up against by, by the Jews coming back and being led by Nehemiah. So what do you do? Everything you've tried, you're desperate to make this happen. Everything you've tried has failed. What do you do? Well, you cut the head off the organization, and the head is Nehemiah. So they, they in their head, come up with a plan. Let's see if we seem really nice to them. Okay, sure, we've tried many different things. We've tried to oppose them. we tried to do everything. But now we'll just be nice and say, hey, let's get together. Let's have a beer. Let's have a cup of tea and just kind of talk things over. And in fact, we'll do it in your territory. The, the area they're talking about, the city they're talking about, is in Judah. It's very much on the fringe of Judah. But they could say, wait, we're willing to go to your province to have this meeting. What more do you want? We just want to be friends. Let's all just get along. Well, fortunately, Nehemiah isn't that dumb and sees right through him. And, and he doesn't say, wait a minute, I get it. You're trying to kill me. I'm not going to go. You don't want anything good. You're trying to kill me and then destroy the work. That wouldn't be very subtle. So he says, "What I'm, I'm doing a great work here. And we can't get thrown off by the, the single uh, pronouns here. I, I, I. I built the wall. I haven't set the doors. I'm doing a great work. He doesn't mean that like he's doing that. He's telling them what he's involved in. Because they haven't invited all the Jews. They're inviting him to be a part of this. So he's not, let's not get carried away. As some people have said, oh, he's now thinking it's all about him. No, we have to keep the context in mind here. He's saying to him, no, what I'm doing is very important. I can't leave it. I cannot come down. If I did, everything would stop. So he says, no. And sure, they just said, okay, we understand. That's great. No, four times. 
They persist. They are that desperate. They know how close the Jews are to completing the wall, to hanging the doors, putting the gates on. And once the wall is completed, it's done. Sure, none of the cities, as we're going to see in a little bit, none of the None of the houses or none of the buildings have been restored. But once the wall's built, it's done. So they're getting desperate because they're getting close. So he rejects them. He says, no, I, I can't do it. He's discerned that what they're trying is, is wrong. And so Samballot tries a third or a, a, another way. There's a fifth letter, and this is an open letter. An open letter meaning that would have been read to the people. And, and he's trying to make the people, trying to undermine Nehemiah by saying, you know, what Nehemiah is really trying to do here is glorify himself and make himself king. The implication is if he makes himself king, you know what's going to happen. Persia's going to come and crush you. It's his glory, his power, his money he's trying to go after. He's trying to make himself something at your expense. So he has a servant go and, and have this letter read. It is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says, as if, as if all the nations know, and oh, by the way, so does Geshem the Arab. Okay, I guess he's the final authority. Geshem the Arab also says that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to those reports, you wish to become their king. And you have to also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. And they'd go and say, there is a king in, in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. And so come down and he'll take control or take counsel together. So he's basically saying, this is what he's trying to do. You, you're going to pay the price. It's going to be bad. King's going to come. It's going to crush you guys. Don't let him do this. You got to stop. Because the only reason he's doing this wall is forget the God thing. Forget that. He just wants to glorify himself. Many years ago, I, I started a nonprofit in the area. I was part of starting a nonprofit in the area. So I was going around with all these organizations, and we were talking about it, and we we're talking about what we're trying to do. And I'm in a meeting, and, and we're just talking about it, and, and a person objects. And, and, I, and I couldn't understand why would this person object to what we were trying to do. We were trying to bring another asset into the area. And after this convoluted conversation in front of a group of 20-plus people, I, I, I was at a loss. It wasn't the world I was used to. I'd just come out of the business world. And, and finally, I, I just had to ask the person, what is the issue for you? And the person goes, you're just starting this organization so you can be made the, the executive director and, and make a bunch of money. And, and I have to be honest, I, I looked at an individual and I was in total shock. First, the job didn't pay that much. Second, why? Would I, I, that is not me. That is not my world. Yet that's what they thought. They thought people starting nonprofit organizations like this were just looking to make a job for themselves. They were just trying to create something that would bring them some position or status or something. And that's how that person thought. Luckily, most of the people in the room did not think that way. But that's what Sam Bellett's trying to 
play into the hearts of the Jews. You're just a pawn in this game that Nehemiah is playing. You're just a pawn he's using to play out his agenda, get what he wants, to gain status, power, money. But Nehemiah has an answer. He says, no such thing as you say say, have been done. For you have invented them out of your own mind. He's going, well, you know, none of this is happening. Oh, by the way, I think you're a little creative. I mean, one could have said it a little stronger, maybe more direct. But he said it in the diplomatic way that Nehemiah seems to have. And saying, this is just a figment of your imagination. What he doesn't say is, you've made this up to undermine what God's called these people to do. You talk about wanting to have your agenda, that's what you're doing, Sam Ballot. You don't care about God, you don't care about these people, and you certainly don't care about me. Let's be honest. But he doesn't. He takes the diplomatic tack. But he does say, for they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. It'll not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. You know, sometimes when, when enemies attack, especially when people try to attack God and what God's trying to do, often that backfires. Because what it does is it causes the people that the attack is coming at to be strengthened in their faith. We've talked about that before. I mean, we're going through some unusual times. And these unusual times should draw us or drive us to God, should strengthen us. We can get all focused on the, what we think is going on or conspiracies or plots or how we think Satan is playing out in this whole thing. The only way that the enemies win is when it doesn't drive us to God. When it drives us to God, when it strengthens our faith, it actually strengthens God's people to go do what God would have them do. Sometimes we get that misplaced. Sometimes we think the battle is existing out there and we have to react. We have to know the battle is right here. As we've said many times, the battleground in the war between the enemies of God and God is in his people. Our redeemed part versus our unredeemed part. And as that battle rages, and as as we give God more control of our lives, as we are more open to the Holy Spirit, as we are more in tune to building our lives on Jesus Christ, that's how enemies of God, Satan, the world, are defeated. They're defeated not by us doing things to sound glorious for ourselves. It's not by us by disobeying smart things. It's by us being driven to Christ, by us growing in our faith, by us understanding that the battle is won not by us going out and trying to do it in our own strength. It's done by us turning to Jesus Christ and allowing Him through the Holy Spirit to fight the battle. And we see that in this next section. There's a prophet, Shemaiah, who, it sounds like a good idea. He says, they're trying to kill you, Nehemiah. See this? 
They're trying to kill you. Let's, you and I, go to the temple and we'll, we'll close the door and they're not going to come in there and they can't get you. I mean, it sounds like a decent plan. That, that meet us in the plains thing, yeah, I saw that. Are you kidding me? Who would fall for that one? This temple deal? Hmm. That sounds not half bad. I mean, they're not going to come to the temple. They're certainly not going to kill Nehemiah in the temple. So why wouldn't we do it? There's a couple little things that, that we aren't fully, unless we're thinking in a little more verse in the Old Testament, a couple things we're missing is, first, Nehemiah has no right to enter the temple. We're talking the temple proper here. We often think temple, we think Herod's temple, we think that big court of the Gentiles and the inner, and all. no, this, Zerubbabel's temple, as we've talked about many times, is a lean-to. They got the temple proper and that's it. Forget the courts, forget all that. It's the temple proper. And Nehemiah's not a priest. He's not a high priest, certainly even. He has no business going into the temple proper. In fact, the odds are he goes into the temple proper. At best, he's sinned greatly against God. At worst, God kills him. It's a no-win situation. The kin, he could think, seek sanctuary in the temple, but not for this reason. But he's a prophet of God. Why wouldn't you listen to him? Yeah, not all prophets of God are the same. He sees through it. He says, should such a man as I run away, if I'm the leader, what business do I have running away? And what man should I, that I could go into the temple and live? He's smart enough to go, he has no right to be in the temple. It might be a great idea, but disobeying God is never the best option, no matter what's going on. It's a little bit like situational ethics. You know, that can be challenging at times as we put into the context or situation we're looking at, the, the absolute ethic of things. But when you're talking about faming the temple or going into the disobeying one of the foundational aspects of of God as you're basically saying, forget you, God. Yeah, you can never win. He might even have spared his life, but it would have cost him everything. So he knows he, he shouldn't run away. He knows he can't go to the temple. But then he figures out or discloses the real fact. For he was hired by Sambalat and Tobiah that he should cause Nehemiah to be afraid and seek wrong shelter. So in this, this little section of six, what have we had? Tried to kill him. Tried to lure him away and tried, tried to kill him. Tried to discredit him to all the people. And now they're trying to accommodation, I guess, kill him through God, discredit him with the people by going to the temple and causing him to run. These guys are really, really motivated. But none of it works. Why doesn't it work? Because Nehemiah, here comes the big word, Nehemiah 
can discern what's going on. Well, when a bad guy, when an enemy of yours comes up and starts offering without any just, you know, reason of why they'd be different, when an enemy shows up of yours and God and starts offering things to you, okay, that's a, that's a sign. Even I could maybe pick that one up. But to see a prophet and to be able to discern a prophet and know that a prophet is not working for God, but is working for your enemies, hmm, that's a little tougher. But what did Nehemiah do? What did he base his discernment on? Starting off with what? The Word of God. He knew what the prophet was saying was wrong by the Word of God. The Word of God will not change. If some person of God comes up to you and says something that you know is not in line with the Word of God, you know it is not from God. But that means you have to know the Word of God. I know we say over and over and over, there's no substitute from studying and knowing the Word of God. Not reading it occasionally, studying it, knowing it. Otherwise, we just fall victim to anybody that calls himself a person of God. To, to be able to hear something, and then quickly in our minds, put it against what we know about God's Word. And say, does that line up? Does that make sense? They even may be quoting the Bible, and yet, does that actually fit the context, and does it fit the total overall message of the Bible? Literally, it saved Nehemiah's life. And I don't think it's too strong a statement to say it can save ours too. Then at the end of that section, we get our, our little precatory uh, comment when he says, Remember Tobiah and Sabalat, O God, according to the things they did. And oh, by the way, he throws in a prophetess in there, a female prophet. He's saying, you know, basically, he's in no position to take revenge anyway. He's got no army. He's got no people. He's not going to do anything to him. But just in the nice, especially Old Testament way, he says, God, just remember them. Remember all they've done. And they may have done it to me, but they've done it more so to you. You who they say they worship. You who they say is, your God, is their God. Just remember. I know we have a different way, rightfully so. Jesus instructed slightly different. And he's not taking any action. But sometimes, you know, God, I'll let you deal with that situation. So, we, we continue on. The wall is going to get finished here. And uh, we're going to uh, see uh, the next phase in their attempt to deal with the situation. So let's go to verse 14 or 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. 
Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshullam the son of Berechiah as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Okay, so the wall's finished. We've tried, uh, we've tried to stop it with the king. We've tried to kill him. We've tried to undermine him. We've tried to attack him. We've tried to um, get him to blaspheme and go against God. None of that worked. The wall gets finished. So now what's the next thing? Well, we've had these insider relationships through marriage. In fact, if you look at some of those names, if they look somewhat familiar, some of those are Hebrew names. So uh, there is a tie here being Tobiah. Remember, he's the Ammonite. So it's kind of interesting that there's intermarriaging here, but maybe it's not interesting. Maybe we should have expected that. And so they go on the uh, PR assault saying, hey, he's really a great guy. Oh, sure, he tried to kill you, tried to attack you, tried to do a few things. But really, when you get right down to it, he's a great guy. He really, really is a great guy. So they're trying to mend fences. They're trying to uh, create a situation where there can be some detente between Nehemiah and Tobiah. Do we ever see that? Oh, but he's such a great guy. Oh, really? You know, this, that. When somebody's an enemy of God and they've had no experience in their life to cause them to turn, they probably are still an enemy of God. Now, that doesn't mean people, I mean, I was an enemy of God. We are all enemies of God at one time doesn't mean we can't turn. But unless there's a, an event in their life, a coming or a turning to Jesus, odds are not. So that's their turn. The next uh, turn in their situation is to try to sell Tobiah to Nehemiah. Not shockingly, he doesn't buy it. He doesn't see, or he sees through the the duplicity of what his own insiders remember those nobles we saw last week that he chided because they were basically trying to profit off the hardship of the people those are the same nobles and leaders that have been also dealing with the enemy Tobiah so we kind of see this ungodliness this ring of uh, individuals that Nehemiah inherited and we see the problems. What's interesting is not everything, as we've said before, is in chronological order, but it does seem to be here, that, that they agreed to not charge the interest, not take the property, not take people advantage of, yet they're still, still working in the case of Dubai, and probably because they have financial interests involved. They've probably got trading routes. They've probably got some other things that are financially tying them to the uh, Amorites, which again, on the Transjordan side. And so that's probably why they're lobbying for him with uh, Nehemiah. But again, Nehemiah's discernment, his ability to see through what his own people are saying and see truth is critical in this whole thing. So 
Then we finish up, we start in uh, chapter 7, we're going to go 7, verses 1 through 4. Crack technical team back there, it's finding chapter 7. Nehemiah 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hanani the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So the walls are built, but that doesn't mean everything's okay. They're going to persist. We saw that with this section we just saw before. Tobiah, they're going to continue to try and undermine the situation. So Nehemiah understands that and has to fortify the area. Their walls are up, but they don't have many people. In fact, there are very few people in the city of Jerusalem. And there are no houses. I mean, think about this. They came, built the temple, built the walls, but most of the people lived out the side of the city because the city had been so decimated in its, uh, when it was conquered by, um, by the Babylonians that it, it, it just got wiped out. So they have really very little in the way of strength in the city. So he, he starts to build an infrastructure. He points his brother. He points the, uh, what would have been the castle or actually more of the temple. We think of that temple guard, the head of the temple guards. And the temple is guarded, but the gates wouldn't normally be guarded. But he moves guards to the gate from the temple. So there's guards at the temple and at the, at the gates themselves, which, again, is unusual. But he's doing it because, quite frankly, they're very militarily weak. And then he has this line about, let the gates of Jerusalem not be open until the sun is hot. Well, they're still standing guard. Let them shut and bar the door. We have really no idea what that says in the Hebrew. The literal Hebrew is just hard to make sense. But the idea is don't open the gates until midday and uh, keep them guarded at all times. It's interesting. So wh where are we at? We are in, in verse or chapter 6 of Nehemiah, just starting in the 7. There's 13 chapters. Nehemiah was sent back to do what? To rebuild the walls. We've just rebuilt the walls. What's the rest of Nehemiah about? Well, what is Nehemiah's calling really by God? Is it just to build the walls? Physical walls have a function, but they in and of themselves do not recreate the promised land for the returning Jews. And sometimes we, we lose sight of what God's called us to do. Sometimes we can get so focused on a physical task that, that we think that's what God's called us to do, when really that's just a step in the broader calling of God. And this is a classic case of that. Nehemiah sees that he's been called to much more than just physically building the walls. He's called to, as Ezra, as we're going to see Ezra in a little bit next week, 
they've called to bring the people back to God, bring them back to the land, bring them back to their religious practices, bring them back to safety, but more importantly, bring them back as the people of God. And that's what he's starting to do. You know, as Timberwood Church, people are so focused early on about when are you going to be a real church, when are you going to build a building? Well, building a building is not the work of building a church. Building a church transcends any physical building. It can be a step in what's being done. It can be a part of what God's called us to do. But at the end of the day, it's not the church. It's a tool. The walls are a tool to remaking the people of God in the promised land. That is not the end all of what Nehemiah has been called to. And it's going to be a problem for the Assyrians. I mean the Assyrians. It's going to be a problem for the Samaritans. It's interesting. We saw that in 6 and just a little bit ago in, in verse 16. When it says, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. I don't think that fully captures it. What it, mean, what it says in Hebrew, what it literally says is they fall down and poke their eye. Obviously, a, a Hebrew idi- a idiom that we don't really. So you poked your, okay. What it means is they, they see that they are less than they were before. Because they saw themselves in comparison to Judah as a more powerful entity looking down on the Jewish inhabitants, not the returning Jews yet. And they saw themselves as something because of that. And they've been diminished because what God has done in their midst. It's fascinating that when the walls go up, if it had stopped there, they would have been in much better shape if they're worried about their own situation. Because the people of God start growing. We have a tiny number. We're going to see this next week. We have a tiny number of people back. From the millions it was down to a few tens of thousands to the millions it's going to be in the time of Jesus. So the work of Nehemiah and what Ezra gets re, will get reintroduced or introduced next week is again making the people of God. That's a greater threat to the Samaritans than any wall or any governmental thing that can happen that they tried so hard to destroy. We have to ask ourselves in this time, what what are we focused on? What's God calling us to do at this time? Are Are we focused on Him? Are we focused on listening and growing and being able to discern Him? Right now, there's so many voices out there. Just met with some people earlier today and They're just talking about how overwhelmed they are about the amount of information. It seems like every hour there's new information. Well, a lot of it's the same information, just repackaged, because these poor networks are trying to figure out how to have something to say. We have to discern. We have to discern, really, what's going on. What's God doing? And in all that time, maybe for the first time, we have a chance to go to His Word. Really study it. 
really understand what God wants for us. People ask me all the time, what's God's purpose for my life? Well, they usually mean, again, that specific purpose. They want that special invitation to something that will work out the way they want it to work. God's purpose for each of our lives is to know him through his son, Jesus Christ, and build our lives upon him. And in that process, be used by him to advance his kingdom. That's true for everyone. And now is a great opportunity to do just that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this this book we call Nehemiah. We thank you for the example he is. We thank you to show us how your enemies try so many different ways to undermine what you're doing, to draw us away, to cause us to doubt, to fear the question. I just pray you give us the discernment of Nehemiah the sermon that only comes from you. We just pray that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth to see, for us to see that it is of you and that which is not of you. And as we do that, Lord, draw us closer, strengthen our faith, and help us understand truly what it means to build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.